Welcome to NoCS3. This is the show where I talk to developers that are self-taught or have been to coding boot camps and I find out how they've become successful. But today's show is a little different because I'm talking to Austin Allred, who's the founder and CEO of Lambda School, one of the most famous coding boot camps in the world. And we're going to be finding out what makes Lambda School different, the whole deal with income share agreements and only paying for your education once you've got hired as a software developer, and Austin's career today. So it's a real treat to have something different and to try a different format for the show. So yeah, welcome to the show, Austin. How many people have passed through Lambda School as graduates already? I'm not sure of the number off the top of my head. I think we're coming up on about 2,000 plus students who have been hired. Um, so a lot. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really cool. So uh, a lot of people's lives to have improved and affected through learning to code. Obviously, I follow you on LinkedIn and a bunch of other places, and you're always sharing success stories where people are like, you know, weren't in such a good place in the past, and now they've learned to code. And now they've got like a great job, great benefits, etc. Do you have any like favorite developer success stories that stand out for you? Oh man. I mean honestly, you know, I just as you're saying that, I looked at our offer board and we had, you know, as an example, eight offers yesterday. Um, wow. and nine the day before that. So there the the volume is high. So the ones that I remember more are some of our earliest students where it was unsure if any of this was going to work. So you know, there's a student who uh, named Julian who had spent his life kind of working in factories. I mean, now he's a software engineer at Stored, which builds software for factories. Um, so that was a fun one. Um, yeah. But I think you know the ones that resonate with me the most are really the ones for whom it's it's really personal. Um, and I, you know, I have three kids, so I am very sensitive to when people are doing it for the sake of giving their kids a better life. One student in Austin, probably the message that hit me the hardest I've ever gotten, because you know when you have that many students getting hired, there. Are, just an incredible number of stories and an immense amount of gratitude. He just you know, messaged me one day and was like, dude, I want you to know something. I was like, yeah, yeah, let me, let me know. He's like, I can finally get my daughter a bedroom. I was like, oh my gosh, that like, that, so that, I think of all the things that have struck me, that's one that's probably hit me the hardest just because, you know, I have a daughter and she has a bedroom and, um, yeah, that's, that's real, right? Like it's, it's real people. Um, it's not just data or stats. It's, it's people at the end of the day. And it's yeah. And families and future generations. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, obviously that's going to make such a difference to that young girl's life. And I guess it's obviously something that probably most of us take for granted that we have certain comforts in our homes and stuff like that. And I guess as well, it's also nice because as nice as some things are, I imagine, like buying a Tesla and stuff like that, having a more kind of profound impact on someone's life than, say, another kind of, you know, consumer good, shall we say. Yeah, I mean, we, we certainly have students who are moving from, you know, making 90K a year to 150K a year, and then it'll become 200K a year. Um, and that's, so that's also real um, and also meaningful. But yeah, definitely moving from, 
a low income to a survivable income is where you feel it the most as a, you know as a human um, and moving from a honda civic to a tesla like at the end of the day it's a car right what really makes yeah. a difference is uh, and i say that as someone who absolutely loves his tesla um, but moving from no car to being able to afford a car or from no insurance to insurance um is is perhaps perhaps more impactful on the individual level than getting a slightly nicer car yeah yeah absolutely um i think as well as a side note i follow you on twitter and i'm pretty sure there is some kind of day where you're like i always said that once i i know reached x that i'd treat myself to a tesla so uh it's i'm glad you're able to get one well the funny thing is when you know when i first like i kind of internally set a goal to buy a tesla first of all tesla's cost one hundred twenty thousand dollars minimum and now you can buy a tesla for like 30k it's not it's oh, not, yeah. not that expensive yeah. of a car now um but yeah i've been i've been a hardcore tesla fanboy. so that's my that's my one like luxury in life as a Tesla. And now it's, it's honestly not that much more expensive than an average sedan anymore. So, so thank you Tesla for bringing the prices down and making my dreams very reachable. <laughs> okay. That's awesome. Um, so like, obviously there's a ton of boot camps around the world. I know that like Lamb school has been very, like you've been a really strong proponent personally, I think as well of the whole income share agreement where basically, you know, students sign an agreement where they don't pay any tuition, unlike in college, and you only pay for your education once you earn 50,000 US, which I think, think that's correct. So is that the main thing that stands out for you is like land school being different or are there other things that make you a better choice than other boot camps, do you think? Yeah. So, you know, for a long time, when people would talk about land school as a boot camp, I was like, we're not a boot camp. I actually started out trying to build something better than and shorter than a CS degree. Um, and of course, you know, boot camps are trying to do the same thing, but I, you know, when I taught myself to code and I'd be talking to folks, you know, from back home who were asking like where they should go, I, I didn't feel like there's a place I could recommend in good conscience. And primarily, I think the, the original business model of boot camps was, or, and is still broken. So if you're running a boot camp, the number one question is how much can you charge? And once you get above, you know, usually 12 or 15 K and I think the most anybody has ever charged upfront has been like 18 K, maybe 20 K. Like the market gets really small after that because people don't have 30,000, $40,000 to shell out for a boot camp. Um, but then that limits what you can teach because if you take a student, you know, so take the average code school, that's 10, $12,000. If you're only collecting $12,000, you can really only teach maximum three months. Um, and you have, if you have a physical space, you have to turn that space over four times a year. So you're limited in duration. Um, and originally, when we started Lambda School, the, all I knew is that I wanted it to be longer and more in-depth. And we, we've kind of shifted between... So we, there, there's been a time when we've been six months, time we've been seven and a half months, time we've been nine months. And we kind of shift more into the pre-course work um, so that you can quit a job later and hit the ground running now. 
Um, so right now it's six months full time, um, and then the the Amazon backend program we're launching is nine months full time. Um, but yeah, if you're looking at nine months, that's three boot camps back to back to back effectively. Um, and it's just really really difficult to fit the right curriculum within twelve weeks. But in order to do that, you have to move away from an upfront tuition model where there aren't enough people to sustain the school. Um, so the ISA unlocks a few things that are obvious and a few things that are non-obvious. The obvious things are that you don't have to have cash to attend. Uh, you can just, you know, have a computer and an internet connection in time um, and you can, you can start. Uh, the non-obvious things are that the school's incentives are aligned with your incentives. So the, you know, the school will go out of business if students don't get hired. Uh, that's not true in schools where you're paying up front. Um, and everybody, I mean, believe me, everybody at the school recognizes that fact. And everybody at the school is very, very, very interested, even personally, um, because their job is on the line in making sure that you get hired. Um, and then the other non-obvious thing is it creates a little bit of flexibility in what you teach in the sense of you don't have to cram it all in 12 weeks anymore. So we can go longer, we can go in depth. Um, and with the Amazon program uh, specifically, you know, we built the curriculum with Amazon, who is probably the biggest hirer of software engineers in the world right now. Um, and we're working together with them. So originally we started out like, hey, you know, what do you want to see in an engineer? And we would survey a bunch of companies and we would get, you know, okay, you know, high level, they need to know these things. Um, boot camps are missing this, so let's make sure we're including those things. But this with Amazon was literally, here is exactly the curriculum we want. Here are the exact skill sets we want everybody to know. And if somebody, you know, meets these requirements, we'd love to interview and hire them. And Amazon's, you know, they're, they're standing behind that, right? So it's curriculum that we built jointly with a company, which I think is unique. And it took, you know, it takes a long time to, to get to a place like that. Uh, but I think over time, Lambda School will more and more look like that, where we're not, you know, it's not kind of implicit, it's explicit that this is exactly what companies want. And we're building exactly that thing. And then, of course, you know, Amazon is not the only company that wants to hire back-end engineers. Um, so there's, you know, every company that we talk to is desperate for back-end engineers um, and that curriculum. And so we show them the Amazon curriculum and say, is there anything you would change? And so far everybody's saying, oh, if you have that, then yeah, we're, we're gonna hire everybody. Um, so, so yeah, um, the ISA, you know, to recap, um, you know, there's no upfront cost, so it makes it much more accessible, which, leads the student body to be much more diverse and interesting. The incentives are fully aligned and it gives you flexibility in length um, because you're not, you know, you don't have that kind of $10,000 upper limit on what tuition can be. And then of course, you know, if a student gets a high paying job, they're, they're fine paying at that point, that, then it's not a problem. The scary thing is when you have to pay and either you don't have the cash or it doesn't work out. Um, students are, fine to pay tuition, they just don't want to get caught in a sticky situation. So, Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, it's really good to hear more about the program that you're developing with Amazon. In terms of like the backend program, what made you decide to make the backend program in the first place? Uh, 
so we, you know, our, our full stack students do a bit of backend, um, but we heard again and again from employers, we, we want to go really, really in depth on the backend. Um, and so we would, we would be taking students and we'd be, give them enough that they could learn the rest on the job, which is you know, what most code schools do. Um, but everybody said, look, we would, we would hire everybody if they had this specific skill set. Um, and Amazon was a real impetus for that. I think, uh, you know, folks at Amazon have told me, you know, anecdotally that they would hire every CS grad and every bootcamp grad in the U.S. that met those criteria and still have open headcount if they could. Um, wow. So they are, I mean, it's Amazon, right? There are yeah. very many Amazons in the world. Sure, sure. And they're, you know, they're at a point where the breadth that Amazon covers is enormous. The, the level of complexity of their backend infrastructure is outrageous and they're constrained at a certain point by how many people they have, by how many engineers they have. Um, and that's, you know, when you have a comp you know, multi-trillion dollar company like Amazon, where their biggest problem is X, it behooves you to figure out how to solve X. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I realize. me as Lambda School and as a student, right? Um, that's a great place to be if you can solve major problems for the biggest company in the world. Like, cash will follow if you can do that. Yeah, I I have to say, like, I realized as I was asking that, it's like, well, there's a huge market demand for back-end developers. That's probably why they made the course. But, um, yeah, it was great to get more info on it. You mentioned, like, briefly at the start of the show that you taught yourself to code. And, I, yeah, I'm pretty sure I believe you don't have, like, a, any college degree. So if I'm right in thinking that, do you mind going over quickly, like, how you learn to code yourself? Yeah, I mean, so I have probably done about every introduction to programming course that there is. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I started out like, I, and I, I would get into this trap that a lot of people learning to code get into, which is, you know, you start in normally in like a learn to code, like introductory course, it starts out like, okay, here are the, the elements of JavaScript, right? Here's arrays, here's loops, here's strings. And then you go through a bunch of different loops and you learn all the loops. And then you go through a bunch of array methods and you go through all the array methods. And then you go through callback functions and hoisting and you know stuff that you can do with functions. And then I was like, great, I have done that. I know how to you know, interpolate a string. I know how to call all these index methods on, or I know how to use all these methods on arrays. Um, and I have no idea what to do with that. <laughs> yeah, a, I've been there. That's a very common problem. Um, and eventually the way I really learned to, to code was just like starting to build really crappy products. And, and like, you, know, you learn that knowing how to, write a for loop is something that you need to know how to do. But most of the time you're programming, it's not like you're sitting there writing for loops all day, right? Um, you're really trying to piece together esoteric software that other people have written and just trying to like match it up and you have to understand what's happening under the hood. But yeah, really like I learned, you know, I, I got caught for years in that phase where like I knew how to, like I knew how to write code, but I didn't know how to build anything. And then eventually I you know, was starting working at companies and really 
you know, in my mind, mostly learned on the job. So I can, I can solve all the code challenge interview questions, but I didn't know how to build an app when I first started working. And you know, my, my rate reflected that. I think I started out making $800 a month. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, just after that, you just pick it up as you go, really. Nice one. No, that's really cool. I was just wondering as well, like I think I saw on your LinkedIn recently, you were talking about, I think if I can paraphrase what you said, you're like, I'm pretty sure we don't need more people being asked how to invert a binary tree in interviews. So like, how do you think tech interviews could be better for developers and for companies so that they can find, you know, good, actually good developers? Yeah, I think I mean, there are, there are, kind of code challenges that are more relevant, right? Than, than inverting a binary tree. Inverting a binary tree is like a purely intellectual exercise. I mean, maybe you'll do it once in your career, but it doesn't solve for like, can this person build a project? Does this person understand writing code? It solves for like, can this person figure out this intellectual contortion? And what it really ends up being is if you know the right people as a junior developer, somebody will say, hey, you have to know how to invert a binary tree if you want a good job at these places. And so it really becomes almost a, for lack of a better way to describe it, a class thing where it's, you know, if you know the right people and they can take you under their wing and say, hey, I know this is like totally irrelevant to being able to build stuff, but like figure out how to do that. And I just think that's suboptimal in a lot of ways. I mean, in, in an ideal world, I think, the interview would be like, hey, let's work together for a little while and we'll see if, you know, see what it's like to actually work with you. But abstracting away from that, because that can be expensive, you know, implement this feature or, you know, I know the interview process at Stripe, who's thought really deeply about this is, hey, here is a project. Um, you're working on implementing this feature and there's a bug in it somewhere. We're not going to tell you where. So can you debug and figure out where the broken thing is? It's way more amorphous, but it's also very, very relevant. Like that's actually what you do on the job, right? You're trying to implement a feature and there's a bug and we're going to watch as you try to solve that. I think that's 10 times better. I think Patrick McKenzie, who is uh, prevalent on Twitter, uh, used the analogy once that like, it's not that the data structure and algorithms challenge aren't coding like they are like you know, you're you're writing code but it's the equivalent of um deciding who the best basketball player is based on like a slam dunk contest right like you do you do dunk in basketball at the highest levels but like that doesn't tell you who's a good basketball player right mm -hmm. so I, I love the the stripe uh, way of interviewing. It takes a little more effort and energy. And at a minimum, if you're going to throw a code challenge at somebody, have it be like as relevant to what they're actually going to do as you can and not like an intellectual exercise for the sake of seeing if somebody can like do something that they'll never need to know how to do. Yeah, absolutely. I think it seems very much part of the broader problem, I guess, in education where you kind of you know, teach to the test and people are actually like learning to pass an exam, not actually learning how to do something, which is obviously not the desired outcome. Um, getting back to like, you know, Lambda School and the whole student process, 
But if someone's interested, like they're listening to this podcast or on YouTube or whatever, and they're interested in applying, what does the application process look like for for your skill? Yeah, so there are a few parts. Um, you know, you, you have to fill out some information so we know who you are. There is uh, a cognitive assessment test. So that just kind of tests how you think. Um, and then there is pre-course work. And the pre-course work is kind of, uh, and you can test out of it if you're more advanced, but it, it makes sure that, first of all, you're serious and you're able to learn some of the basics of programming. But then the, the big thing is, you know, we actually, we only have six months. Um, and I can't even imagine trying to do it in three months. That seems, I, I actually literally don't know how you train someone to be a software engineer in three months, because uh, six months is intense. But in order to do it in six months, we need you to come in at this level, right? You have to understand at least basically HTML, CSS, and some JavaScript. Uh, and for some people that, you know, they've been playing with stuff for a long time and they already know that and that's easy. For some people, you know, if you're seeing a text editor for the first time and you're understanding what a string is for the first time, that's, that's different, right? That, that might take you a minute. So basically a cognitive assessment, uh, pre-course work, and then depending on which track you are applying for, um, there may be an interview, but it, it depends on the track. And then the data science track is a little bit different um, where there are more math and statistics questions um, than just code questions. If you know nothing, you can still get to the point where you can start Lambda School, but you have to get to that point one way or another. Yeah, that's that's cool. I mean, I think it's good as well. In my view, it might be almost like unethical to have someone take a bit camp without them touching HTML or CSS because they might find out it's not for them. And I think doing uh, pre-work or prep work to say, okay, you have to see if this is for you or, you know, get through those initial hurdles. It's good for both sides as well as, as well as for the school. Um, yeah, and then after that, so the the first month of full-time or the first two months of part-time, if you decide during any of that time that it's not for you and you leave, like the, the ISA goes away. So we're not, no. you know, we're not built to trick people into signing agreements. It's actually very, very forgiving. And even after that, you only start, you know, owing a fraction of the ISA and then it builds up over time. You don't need to like be afraid that you're getting locked into something. I know there are schools that have like, you know, if you don't drop out in the first 48 hours, then you owe the entirety of tuition, which wow. is intense. Yeah. If you, if you decide you don't like it on day three, uh, you <laughs> yeah. $15,000. That's a lot. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, we, we try to be as lenient as we can. Um, but, but yeah, the, generally speaking, the pre-course work will tell you if you're into this, if it's interesting, um, if you want to keep going, uh, and if, you know, every once in a while, there's someone's like, yeah, you know, I spent six months on the pre-course work and I barely figured it out. And like, it, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, you know, we can have that conversation. Like this may not be for you because the pre-course work shouldn't be that hard. I mean, it should be hard, but it shouldn't take you, you know, it, sh it shouldn't be the hardest thing you've ever done. And you have to like, you know, send yourself into contortions trying to figure out how to like write a function in JavaScript. Um, and if, you know, if that's the pace, then you, you can, I'm not saying you can't learn to code, um, but Lambda School may be not the right pace for you. So you know, we'll have that discussion where we need to.
Yeah, cool. So because Lamb School is like an online school for learning to coach, what does a, a couple like a typical day work like for someone learning? Yeah, so uh, we start out. So we we use uh, kind of a pedagogical framework called I do, we do, you do, or the IY loop. Um, so you start out every morning and you have a guided project and the instructor is going to basically build something while you watch. Um, and then you will build something while your peers or the instructor watches. And then at the end of the day, you're building it on your own um, and you'll submit your work each week and we'll critique it. Um, but it's really like, you know, that loop again and again and again every day where it's like, okay, here's, you know, here's the thing I'm going to build. You watch them build it. Um, now you build another you know, second iteration of that and you're going to have people watching over your shoulder. And then there's the real challenge where you're doing it on your own um, and you, you, turn it, you turn it over and we see how well you did. Um, and whether you zoom in or zoom out, it's really that again and again and again. Um, and then every uh, fifth week is what we call build week, which is where basically the entire school shuts down and turns into a, a dev shop, for lack of a better way to describe it. So you're given, you know, if you're in the front end section of the school, you're given uh, basically the same way you would on the job. You know, here's your ticket. Here is the, you know, the thing that the product manager decided you needed to do. Uh, you need to build that and then submit a pull request, and you know, and then you send your you send us the link to the, the pull request. Uh, so we do everything within real tools, uh, text editors, and get and basically the way you turn stuff in in Lambda School is you're just submitting a link to the pull request that you created, which is how it actually works on the job. And then one of the last months of Lambda School is what we call labs, which is where um, you're put on a team and we build products for nonprofits. Um, so you're actually going to take something into production. Sometimes it's from zero. Sometimes it already exists, and so you're adding features. Um, but it's an actual live production environment. Um, and yeah, that's basically how Lambda works. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really cool. I think it's great that you're integrating Git early in someone's career, so they don't suddenly get to job and they're just like, ah, what's this? Uh, yeah, and, and not just not just Git, but like working on a team using Git and product management and sprints and tickets and Jira and, or, you know, whatever Jira competitor you want to pick. You, you show up on day one knowing how to uh, onboard yourself, pull a ticket, write code, submit it, do a code review, all that stuff. Um, so you're actually, you're ready to ship on day one. Awesome. That's very cool. Um, do you think, are there still any companies or are there certain companies that are less willing to hire or more willing to hire people from Lambda School or boot camps in general? Or do you think it's kind of going away and most companies are kind of like open to people without CS degrees now? Yeah, I think it's broadly going away. I mean, there are a couple places where for weird reasons, there are legal requirements to have a degree. Uh, mostly in like defense contractors, but everywhere else, I don't know of any company that hasn't hired a Lambda school grad that doesn't have a CS degree that's of any prominence, really. Um, there are, you know, the Googles of the world take more time to, to prepare for. So generally, if you really want to work at Google, you need to spend more time preparing for that interview than you would, um, you know, preparing for some other companies. 
But yeah, we, I mean, we've got a bunch of students at Google. We have dozens at Amazon. We, you, know, you name a company, there are Lambda grads there without a CS degree. About half of our grads have no degree whatsoever. And you know, I think that may not have been true 10 years ago, but now we're basically at a place where it may be a little bit harder to get your foot in the door in some places if you don't have a degree, but everybody will still take a look at you. And if you can do the job well enough, certainly after like you have a year or two of experience, I mean, nobody ever asked me after my first job if I had a degree and nobody really cared. It was, you know, how well can you do the job and how much experience do you have? So if you're, if you're to compare apples to apples, right? If there's an 18 year old, one of them goes to Lambda school, one of them decides to go get a CS degree. You know, you really should be comparing like where they both are at the end of four years. So the person who went to Lambda school at the end of four years, they have three years of experience. Their ISA is entirely paid off. They've probably made a couple hundred thousand dollars versus and you know, three years of experience is a big deal versus a new grad with a bunch of debt and a CS degree. You know, so you have to actually take the four years into account. Oftentimes people say, well, where are you at the end of six months of a code school versus at the end of four years of a CS degree? Uh, like that's a three and a half year Delta and a lot of money <laughs> Delta. So you know, apples to apples, you know, our very first students are just barely getting the point where they would be graduating if they had gone to college instead of going to Lambda school. And they're all, you know, well into the six figures, years of experience, senior engineers. Um, so, and net net, when you actually compare time to time, um, it, it's a very different discussion than like on the day a student graduates, where are they? Yeah. And, you know, so we still frankly do better than most schools on the day a student graduates, but yeah. You know, once you factor in the other three and a half years, yeah. it's way better. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think, yeah, that is a better comparison for sure. Do you get, like, a lot of people that are saying, like, Mom, Dad, I'm 18, I'm not going to college, I'm going to go to Lambda School instead? Yeah, quite a few. Yeah, um, cool. So we have, we have like a, if you're looking at, like, age, we have kind of a bell curve around 31, where people are kind of mid-career switching. And so, you know, they may be 24, they may be 35. But then there's another little bell curve around 18. Um, so we have, we have a lot of 18-year-olds, and we have a non-trivial number of people who went to a couple years of college and realized, like, this is not what I was promised and not what I felt like I should be paying for. Um, and a lot, of, a lot of students, actually, who went to schools to study CS, but the school CS program was weak. And if you get below the top maybe 100 universities in the U.S., there are a lot of really, really bad computer science programs out there. Uh, sometimes we see them applying batches. We'll take you know, 10 people at a time from a school in Chattanooga that just doesn't do a good job of teaching CS, and they all come to Lambda School together. There's a fair amount of that. It's not 90% of the students or anything, but there are a lot of 18 to 21-year-olds enrolled. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. I just know, so on newscs3.com, I view lots of people that are self-taught or have been to boot camps. Like, it's a lot of, I guess, career changers. I've had, like, one or two people that have been, like, you know, 18, 19 or whatever, but I guess it's mostly people in their, you know, mid-20s to 30s. They've had a few jobs, and they've just been like, nah, I want to get into coding or whatever. So, yeah, it's, but it's definitely interesting. Demographics are 80% career switchers. 
20% opting out of college for Latin school. Yeah, cool. As we're talking about college, what, I mean, this is like a huge question, but what do you think is the future of college given the fact that, you know, like I went to university, got a degree, had a lot of fun, but like couldn't find a job afterwards. And I think a lot of people have had that experience. Where do you see college like going in the future when you have institutions like Lamb School that are competing? Yeah. So, you know, I don't have anything against a university education for the right person at the right time. Um, what really frustrates me is the notion that everybody needs to go to college or that college is like the only way to be a successful individual. Uh, for me, I mean, it, I just had no interest. Like college was really expensive and I wasn't getting nearly as much out of it as I was self-learning, frankly. Um, and I know that's a non-popular opinion, uh, but I mean, the, the Wall Street Journal came out with a report today that if you look at, uh, I'm going to try to remember the stats off the top of my head, but if you look at master's degree programs, you know, about half of them graduate with a, more debt than their annual income. So if you're making 120K a year, you have 140K in debt. After, that's like, that's outrageous. And it's something like a third of the students after two years have either, have, haven't touched any of their principal. Um, so there's, they're still just making interest only payments mm. or already behind on payments. I think Europe does a much better job of college generally, where first of all, you start when you're younger. Uh, second of all, it's three years. Third of all, it's much cheaper. Um, and the, the, that's because the government limits how much a student can borrow from the government where we don't do that in the U.S. So whatever an 18 year old wants to pay in tuition, load up on the debt and we'll figure it out. And that's, that's the only reason we have people, you know, taking out $75,000 a year in loans for an undergrad degree, which if you've got that, right? If you come from a rich family, sure, do whatever. But if you're going to graduate with a, you know, something that doesn't pay well and be $300,000 in debt by the time you graduate college, it's immoral in my mind that nobody pulls you aside and says, hey, just so you know, like, you will never climb out of this. And the university's not incentivized to tell you that. The lender's not incentivized to tell you that. Like nobody along the way is holding the buck other than the student. So it's just a matter of what can we get the student to sign up for? And that's pretty messed up. So my, my short answer is if I were waving a magic wand, I would limit what the government is backing. And there are multiple different ways you can do that. But I don't think the federal government should be giving you hundreds of thousands of dollars of loans to study something where you, everybody knows that you won't be able to pay that back. Like somebody has to stop pouring the drink at some point. Far fewer people should be required to go to college than currently are. And we need to stop thinking about college as the, you know, the four-year university as the only path for a person who will be successful in the future, because it's not true and it's not healthy. Um, so in my mind, far fewer people should attend college than currently do. And I get why people do, but um, I think it's actually a net unwise decision for many, many people. Sure. I agree with a lot of what you said. I mean, obviously, I'm not from the States, so I don't have, obviously, your level of knowledge on yet how much the federal government spends, etc. But I think in the past, I do remember that Lambda School had a presence in Europe and 
was the fact that our college in general, our college debt isn't as huge as in America. Is that was that part of the reason why you pulled out of Europe? Because it's not so bad here for student debt. Uh, no, that wasn't really the reason we pulled out. We we, um, we pulled out because we we're trying to do too much without enough infrastructure behind us. So we've really spent the last 18 months um, getting, like, at the time, Lambda School was, like, entirely people, for lack of a better way to describe it. So any change we wanted to make to the curriculum, you make the change to the curriculum, but then it was heavily reliant on a lot of communication. We're constantly trying to figure out how to get the communication down. And one of the big things that I learned over time is that you shouldn't have to communicate as much as we were doing. And if you have a really solid product, and if you have solid infrastructure, you actually communicate less and the outcomes are better. But we just didn't have that infrastructure in place. So I'm sure in the near future we'll be going um, you know, back into more places internationally. Uh, but we really wanted to, to focus on doing a couple of things really, really well and on building the infrastructure for a while before we started you know, expanding like crazy. Yeah, so we'll, we'll be back in Europe. And there, you know, is there marginally less demand for Lambda School in Europe? Probably. Uh, but we, we never had a problem enrolling as many students as we wanted in our European classes. Cool. Yeah, definitely. I think as well, I've noticed across lots of businesses where, like, for instance, lots of UK businesses will start operations in Australia and New Zealand and America. And then they're just like, oh, wait, we're spread really thin. Let's just come back and concentrate on the market that, you know, we live in and we know really well. So it's easy to underestimate even little cultural differences. And one of the big differences in Europe is the regulatory environment. A lot of the stuff that we play with on the hiring side doesn't work in the EU because the, it's it's so much harder for an employer to hire and fire in Europe versus in the US. Um, so that limits the amount of experimentation and creativity you can have. Um, but yeah. Yeah, because I think you've got these things like the like Lambda Fellows where companies can kind of take people on. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So uh, Lambda School Fellows is a program where basically we match you with an engineer or you pick from you know three to five engineers or data scientists um, or designers. Um, and basically Lambda School covers the first month of that student's salary while you try them out. Um, so we're really, really good at helping people onboard really quickly and get to where they're shipping code really quickly. Um, and when employers understand that, they come back again and again and again. You know, in our mind, that is such a better experience than a traditional interview loop for both the employer and the employee, where I would much rather have you working and shipping production code um, than you know going through constant interview loops and the company would rather be having somebody watching you ship production code than going through interview loops as well um but the you know the piece there is somebody has to pay for it so the way we've structured it is it basically land the school um pays for your salary for that first month and then if the company decides to hire you 
they pay Lambda that month of salary back. So we've de-risked it on the employer side as well. Um, and if not, then Lambda School eats that, um, which is, I mean, it's something that only makes sense if Lambda School is highly incentivized to make hiring work. Um, so I think that's one of the things that's really special from the ISA. If you already paid tuition, you know, why would we risk you know, thousands of dollars to see if we can help you get hired? Um, so that's you know, one of the times when incentives being aligned really matters. Yeah, it seems to be like a kind of thing that runs through the whole of everything you do is this alignment of incentives, which is, yeah, it's really cool. And it's obviously a lot different to how other lots of other companies work, uh, not just like in this sector, but just in general. So if we could kind of get onto a bit about you as an entrepreneur, like why dedicate your life to land school and teaching people to code? Yeah. Uh, the short answer is I built what I really wish I would have had um, when I was going through that. I was always waiting for somebody to start Lambda school. And I was certain that there would be some, somebody with a deep history in pedagogy and academia or deep understanding of, you know, finance or internet products that I was just waiting and waiting and waiting for somebody to do it. Uh, cause it felt so obvious. Obviously it's really difficult. It's incredibly difficult to make it work. Um, but I couldn't figure out why nobody was doing it. Um, so eventually I said, you know what, I'll just do it myself. And it felt like, at first it felt like a guilty pleasure because it was like, oh, this is like the problem that has been nagging me for like 15 years. And I actually get to do this now. Like it's great. And I have no credentials. Right. Um, I think I know as much about education and pedagogical theory as most people, like anybody in academia now, um, mm. like you reach the end of the research really quickly. Um, for, you know, as an example, the probably the most impactful research that's been done in education is uh, called Bloom's Two Sigma Problem. And that was a study that was done in the 80s. And still nobody has figured out how to implement the results of that, which are wild. Like we're talking, here's how you make the median student perform at the 98th percentile. And it's very much there. Uh, it's expensive to do. So we're just waiting for somebody to productize that. And universities are not in the place where they can productize it. Public schools are certainly not in the place where they can productize it. It's really difficult to do within the walls of the classroom. So it's like, it's been waiting, like it's been lying there for 40 years now, waiting for somebody to take advantage of it. And I'm starting to see schools do that. Um, but yeah, the, the, the execution of education generally is far behind the most basic research to the extent where more research and more experience doesn't help you much because nobody's gaining experience in the right ways. Um, so eventually I said, you know what, I'll just start it myself. And I'm sure there's gonna be a lot I don't know and I'm sure there's gonna be a lot I'll have to learn. And I'll, I have, you know, certainly have hired people around me who are experts at what they do. Um, but yeah, I think, it's, I think it's working out really well. Yeah, it's, it seems to be going great. Um, like, I know that you've got like a really strong, you know, personal following. You've got like over a hundred thousand followers on on Twitter, and you've got like a really strong personal brand and reputation. Do you think like Lambda School would be 
as successful if you didn't have that personal brand and you were just kind of like Joe Smith, very quiet. I'm just going to start a coding school. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, the, the places where it really matters, uh, you know, obviously, you know, it's nice that a lot of people who are considering attending Lambda School or telling their friends about Lambda School have heard about it through me. So that's helpful. Um, and you know, obviously raising money is easier if everybody knows who you are. Um, but the real thing that's actually been the most useful is the speed at which we can iterate. Um, and I'll, so when we first got into Y Combinator, I was like, okay, I need like Twitter as a distraction now. I only had, you know, maybe 30,000 followers at the time, which is still a lot, but relative to now, it's not. Um, and so I was like, okay, I need to like stay off Twitter, be heads down, focus on product, talking to users. And then I tweeted a couple questions about halfway through YC. It was the first time I'd used Twitter in, you know, a month and a half. And it was a very intense month and a half. And the level of feedback I got instantly from thousands of different sources was like, oh my gosh, this is a tool. Um, this is actually a really valuable tool. And then at the end of Y Combinator, when we had students graduating, hey, who wants to interview? You know, we have our first 10 students who are about to graduate. Who wants to interview them? And instantly, 100 companies, right? Um, so where you know, Twitter will not make you a successful founder, um, but it is an advantage for me in our speed to iterate, our speed to gather information from the market, um, and really a speed of learning more than anything. Like I can ask any question in the world and I will have people who are the best in the world at that thing responding to me and offering to jump on the call. So that's super valuable. Um, and you know, I have to credit Twitter with that, the network that they've built. I have, I have my qualms with Twitter for sure. And sometimes it's painful, but that, that it's, I think it's been an advantage, but not in the way that people assume. People assume like it's just in, you know, creating the brand or helping people like hear about it. That's nice. But really it's the, the speed of learning that it's the most useful from Twitter. Okay. Yeah, I agree. I think, I believe like, you can like obviously feel free to correct me when you started off you were kind of self-funded and then you went down the vc route do you have any views on uh, if either is best or is it just depends on the business yeah my my view is not as spicy as some would make it seem um starting lab school i was like actually very anti-vc um i had a past bad experience with a couple of bad vcs that i thought they they basically made it incredibly difficult to run the company. And then there's, there's a really long story where, um, you know, I probably uh, in retrospect, I'm like, ah, surely there was a way to not let that VC kill the company, but it would have been really difficult to not do so. So I was anti VC and I was like, I'm going to bootstrap this whole way. But then when we were in Y Combinator, we actually sat down and ran a model. So we actually built like a full financial model. Well, we built two of them. One was, this is what I think will happen without VC. And the other was, this is what I think will happen if we decide to raise a seed round. Because we were, we were profitable when we were in YC, not by a ton, but it's just two people. And I was saying, I don't want to go to demo day. I don't want to pitch anybody. Um, and YC was actually like totally fine with that. Like, okay, like let's, let's understand why. 
Um, you know, it's probably the easiest fundraising you will ever do in your entire life. But like, that's cool if that's if that's what's right for the company. Uh, but then as so that was their assignment they gave me. It's like figure out what's right for the company by building. Like, what does the world look like if you decide to go down a VC-backed path? What does it look like if you decide not to? Um, and then, you know, let's look at it and pick what's right for you. And as I did that, you know, especially given the fact that we are using ISAs, the advantage of having a little bit of capital to invest before the cash was coming in was just, it was enormous and it compounded. Um, and now I'm surrounded by VCs who are, incentive aligned with me and have the same long-term vision, which, which was not true, frankly, the first time I raised VC. I think that the answer for should you raise VC is, you know, what is the business? What does the business look like in a world with or without? Um, you know, you can really, you're making assumptions, but you can create a decision tree for that and what happens with, what happens without. Um, and then, you know, what are the incentives of the investors? Um, and I do a little bit of investing now, and that's something I understand way more now than I did when I started my first company. Uh, but if, you're, if your objective is just raise as much money as you can from whoever will give it to you, you will run into places where your incentives are misaligned with investor incentives. And depending on how you structured things, that can matter or it cannot. Um, so knowing how to do it wisely and having people watching over your shoulder who are and making sure that you are working with investors that you are actually aligned with is, is not easy to do and incredibly important. Uh, and I feel pretty good about the way we've raised thus far. We've turned down hundreds of millions of dollars of capital because I felt like it wasn't the right move at the time. And I felt like our interests were divergent with the interests of those particular investors. Um, and I am a strong, strong believer in the power of incentives. Uh, I think they matter way more than even the most incentive-sensitive people give them credence. Um, so, so, yeah, that's that's my two cents. Uh, which, you know, backing out from that, make sure it makes sense for you, and make sure you're working with people who have the same goals as you. Is how I would summarize. Yeah, that's awesome. It's like, yeah, really great to get your thoughts on that. Just to kind of wrap up, what is your favorite book? My favorite book ever is Les Miserables. Okay. Um, my favorite nonfiction book, I go back and forth all the time. The, the ones that I've really enjoyed recently, I uh, enjoyed a book called Winning by Tim S. Grover, who was the trainer for Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant. Some of my favorites of all time, the Wright Brothers biography, Becoming Steve Jobs, I think is way better than the official biography of Steve Jobs. And then one of my favorites is a little less well-known. It's called The New New Thing. It's, it's about like Silicon Valley in the 80s and just how crazy it was and what it looked like then. Um, so those are some of my favorite nonfiction books. Yeah, they, they sound awesome, especially the last one that sounds, I'm sure, is like a yeah wild west time back then so yeah, it, was, it was different uh, yeah yeah i'll need to check that out do you have a favorite podcast or a youtube channel Ooh, i nothing that's like super interesting i listen to tim ferris i listen to joe rogan from time to time when i think the guest is interesting um and clearly i'm just like sorting by like popular podcasts because i'm not deep enough in the weeds to know which ones are actually good <laughs> Yeah. Um, no. Worries. Yeah. So those aren't very exciting. I, I've been 
really into a YouTube channel called Rick Shields Golf. I don't even golf. I just think that that channel is fascinating. Um, so I'll go with those. Yeah, nice one. And yeah, final question would be, who's your favorite entrepreneur? Um, Elon. It's got to be Elon. I mean, he's he's got his quirks and he's a little bit wild, but that's kind of what it takes, I guess, to... But like just the, the stuff that Tesla and SpaceX have pulled off, this is floating around in the internet somewhere, but... Before I started Lambda School, I put my entire net worth into Tesla when it was like trading at $180 a share before the split. So um, I've always been a big fan of what they're doing and just the stuff they're doing. It's freaking incredible. Like the the speed at which they build things, the love, watching rockets land next to each other is just freaking incredible. Um, yeah. So got to go with Elon. I know that's probably super cliche, but who else is doing anything even vaguely comparable to that? So Yeah, well, I should have known because, you know, he made your dream car, which we discussed at the start of the episode. So that was like a basic question on my part. Thanks a lot for being on the show. Where can people find out more about yourself and Lance's go? Yeah, uh, I'm Austin on Twitter, A-U-S-T-E-N, or Lamb School on Twitter lambschool.com or any social media site for all Lambda School. Awesome. Cool. Well, thanks again for being on the show. It's been a great pleasure. And yeah, thanks for meeting you in person. Well, in person. Good to meet you face to face finally. I know you've been yeah. chatting back and forth every now and then for a long time. But... Yeah, definitely. And I think my girlfriend is actually very keen to go to Utah sometime. So maybe we'll come, come hang out. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be awesome. Open uh, invitation. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay. Cheers, man.